This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host. Welcome, everyone. This is the Meaningful Sport Podcast, and I am your host, Nora Ronkainen. Meaningful Sport is a series of discussions on the why and how involvement in sport and physical activity can be an important part of a life worth living. If you are interested in the theme, you might also want to check out MeaningfulSport.com. There you can find podcast show notes, read a blog, and access many resources for further explorations of Meaningful Sport. Today we are going to focus on a topic that has become one of the major foci of sports psychology community, namely athlete mental health and well-being. There have been many stories in the media about athlete struggles during and after their careers, and sports psychology scholars have dedicated extensive efforts to understand these issues in the past few years. Yet, rather than only focusing on mental ill health, such as depression, my guest today has argued that we also need to focus on understanding well-being and flourishing. And specifically for the topic of this podcast, we will connect the topics of mental health and well-being with questions about living with meaning and purpose and what it might look like in sports. I'm delighted to introduce my guest who successfully defended his PhD dissertation titled Exploring Flourishing in Canadian University Sport at the University of Alberta less than a week before this recording session. So it's certainly exciting to hear about the findings of this very recent PhD work and also hear reflections on where we are and where we might be going in terms of understanding well-being, flourishing and meaning in sport. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Curtis Panko, and congratulations for finishing your PhD. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here and get the chance to chat a little bit about my work and the area of athlete uh, mental health and well-being in sport. Yeah, it's really wonderful to have you. And I was listening to a public lecture and you really did like a fantastic job. So, so delighted to have you here today. Yeah, it would be just first really nice to hear a little bit about the background of yourself and why you decided to study this topic. It's always interesting to think about with this kind of research, the the amount of me search that goes into it or the personal experience. So I was a university student athlete in Canada during my undergrad uh, program. And I've also spent the last five years coaching now uh, while doing my master's and my doctoral degrees here at the University of Alberta. So for me, it was really an opportunity to give back to sport in a different way. And as I'm sure we'll get to kind of make my sport experience meaningful, um, make sense of maybe some of the challenges I'd had at the university sport level, and also feel like I was doing something that was going to make a difference for future student athletes as they came through. So we could really hopefully get an understanding of how we can promote mental health and protect mental health among this group. Yeah, thank you for sharing that and listening to your presentation and looking at the context of Canadian university sport, you you showed some numbers to say that there is 
certainly some concern in terms of mental health. So what do we know in terms of, of the numbers and, and how many athletes are having having some trouble? When it comes to mental illness, which I look at as something that's related to but separate from mental health in my work, we know that anywhere between uh, 20 and 65% of student athletes will report struggling with mental illness at some point in their career. And even something like psychological distress in the Canadian university sport context, there's research that suggests that the student athletes in Canadian university sport will experience that psychological distress at rates of about two times higher than the general population. And then when we look at mental health, there's a report by Statistics Canada that suggests that around 77% of Canadians at any given time are experiencing full mental health. But among Canadian university student-athletes, the number is sitting between 44 and 46%. So with all that in mind, it seemed like a really important area for us to look into, especially when we consider that there's a lot of anecdotal evidence where people will say, you know, university sport was great for me, it did this, or, um, you know, when I was getting recruited. Um, you hear things from all the different coaches where you're presented with the benefits of participating in Canadian university sport and how it's going to be helpful to you. And I think for a lot of student athletes, it is and it can be over time. But it seems like during the actual participation, we're ending up with some challenges. Um, so that was the academic reason I wanted to pursue this as well, was just really getting into the, looking at the context and understanding the differences between those student athletes and the general population. It was kind of illuminating that we maybe needed to start taking a different approach to supporting student athlete mental health. Yeah, it wasn't like the key focus of your research, why it is that student athletes might be experiencing more uh, mental health issues than non-athletes, but maybe you can just offer some some reflections on what you think are some of the reasons why, why athletes might be struggling more than non-athletes. It's a really interesting question, and I think it actually does come through a little bit in my research in terms of um, the absence of certain things or the presence of certain things. So because I looked at student athletes who self-reported high levels of mental health, both in life and in sport, some things that came up were essentially time management. So they felt that they were able to balance up these different areas of their life in that they could spend time with family, they could spend time with friends, they could stay on top of their academics, and they felt like they were challenging themselves and growing in sport. And I think when you see issues with student athletes experiencing maybe lower rates of mental health or high rates of psychological distress or mental illness, there might be an absence of that balance where the student athlete might feel like they're having to compromise in these other important areas of their life to experience success in sport, or they feel like they're not experiencing success in sport because they're dedicating so much time to these other areas of their life. And so 
that lack of balance, I think, would be a, a contribution to it. As well, of course, we have the pressures of being a, a high-level athlete. So in Canadian university sport, uh, some of the student-athletes will go on to compete at international events. Uh, some will go on to compete at Olympic level. Some will go on to play sport at a professional level. So there is some pressure associated with succeeding at that level. But I think those who are able to uh, have that balance, those who are able to kind of create value for themselves and identify value in their lives outside of sport, as well as in sport, are able to kind of mitigate some of those sport-related challenges a little bit better than those who might not have that balance and who might not find value outside of it. Yeah, and I think that links quite closely. There is so much research at the moment on dual career, and I've also contributed to some of that work. And uh, like this time management, lack of time uh, type of thing always comes in. And, and we know that many athletes find it quite challenging to do both well. So often they would be prioritizing one over the other. I mean, high-level athletes, often sport comes first for them. But then it's also dangerous if you're trying to do both very well because that can be very stressful and and also like burnout is one of the potential dangers if you're really trying to do your dual career up to the level that you're really excelling at both. So I wonder if you have some, we are a little bit jumping ahead of ourselves, but whether you were talking about the dual career balance as well as a part of your interviews. Mm-hmm. It did come up. Um, my focus was mostly on the relationship between experiencing positive mental health within sport and the way that related to kind of the, their overall perceptions of mental health. And I actually think that's a really interesting future direction is understanding how the different important domains of an athlete's life can influence their overall well-being. So understanding that maybe if, uh, if a dual career athlete, let's say a student athlete, has academic commitments and sport commitments, and if they're facing challenges in one of those areas, can they kind of focus on their success in, say, academics when they're facing sport-related challenges uh, and be able to protect their global mental health, even though their sport mental health might be, or the, you know, the impact of their sport participation might not be a net positive on their overall mental health. If they're able to shift that focus to another domain and they feel like they can balance it well and they are balancing it well, um, I think that's a really interesting direction to understand the way the different domains interact. And I also think one of the things with identity and dual career that's going to be important for us to consider in the future is that idea, and it relates to this, uh, it relates to the idea we just discussed, but identity foreclosure as an athlete, I think obviously is going to be a barrier if you if your entire identity is built around being an athlete despite having these other obligations but then you experience challenges as an athlete and those other areas aren't going well you're not really going to have anything to protect your overall mental health from these changes when you face sport specific challenges and as we all know there's almost always challenges associated with sport participation so yeah i think having those other domains is a really, really important area for us to understand how we can make sure that they're 
being used or that our athletes are interacting with them in a way that's constructive for their overall mental health. And yeah, as discussed, I have my guesses as to what that would look like, but mm-hmm. I, I think it's a really cool area and I'm looking forward to either diving in there myself down the road or seeing what other people do in the dual career field and understanding how those interactions can contribute to overall mental health. Yeah, and I think just thinking of how much focus and attention there is on mental health in sport on one hand and the dual career on the other hand, like I would certainly expect to see loads of work on putting those two together as well. Yeah. It's really exciting that you've just finished your PhD work and you've spent loads of time reviewing the literature in the past couple of years. And so it would be really nice to just hear your broader reflections on where we are in terms of the knowledge that we have gathered in in sports psychology field and and what are the key shortcomings and and gaps we have and that also very nicely builds into what you then decided to do in your PhD work. I think when we look at where we're at we've done a really 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 good and thorough job of understanding a lot of the stressors and sort of potential challenges to experiencing positive mental health as well as establishing kind of some of the contributors I guess to mental illness among these elite populations Uh, as well as a little bit in recreational sport I think that's an area where you'll see people like Stuart Vell is a really good example of someone who's really focusing in on that kind of community level of sport or that recreational level of sport and understanding more about mental health challenges and mental illness there. And I think when you look at what we've got, actually Stuart and colleagues just published a review in Psychology of Sport and Exercise looking at expert position statements on mental health and sport. And there's actually been, I think they found 13 of them, which to me demonstrates that we've done a really, there's got to be a pretty good foundation of research there for there to be 13 different expert position statements, um, all involving researchers in order to make statements on where these experts think we should be going with mental health support for athletes based on the existing literature. I will note that in Stewart's review, they mentioned that the quality of these recommendations is they use the term low, um, and I don't think that's a judgment on the researchers. It's a an assessment of the way in which the position statements were generated. And they talk, there are actually appraisal tools and methodologies for developing guidelines, mostly from healthcare, as we tend to borrow a lot uh, from. Um, and so... I know Stuart's got some work that's going to be developing guidelines, and I know he's planning on using a much more rigorous methodological framework with regards to guideline development, um, which is really exciting to see. I think that's something where we've kind of missed. I think we've got experts making a consensus. I think we need to consider with that kind of whose voices are being privileged in generating these guidelines, because not having athletes be involved, not having um, the organizations themselves be heavily involved in the development of the guidelines, even if they have been sent as maybe a cursory check, I think is it's an omission. So I think making sure that we're involving more athlete voices, that we're involving coaches, that we're involving kind of the people 
in the context that we're trying to have a positive impact on are involved. Um, and I think that's something that came up in their review. And in terms of moving forward, and one of the things that in, inspired me to do my own research was, again, we have a great understanding of factors related to stress and mental health challenges and mental illness in sport. And when we look at the guidelines, when we look at Stewart's review of the, the expert position statements that came out, each of those statements acknowledged that mental health is the presence of positive functioning, not simply the absence of mental illness. But when we, again, when we look at the actual content of the guidelines, and even in the review that uh, Stuart did, when we look at the the content of their synthesized guidelines or their synthesized recommendations based on these guidelines, there's nothing related to mental health promotion or protection. It's all based on avoiding these um, stressors and avoiding kind of mental illness and how do we triage athletes who are experiencing a mental illness. But if mental health is the presence of positive functioning and not just the absence of mental illness, how is preventing mental illness going to contribute to the mental health of athletes? Which again, all of these guidelines, all of these position statements say is what they're getting at. And that's an argument that's been echoed for a very long time. Uh, Corey Keyes is arguably the most well-known advocate for rethinking our guidelines around mental health. Um, and it's Keyes' model that I used in my own research because of that, because I really wanted to understand the promotion of positive mental health and the protection of positive mental health, rather than continuing down a path where we have really good, well-established research and researchers looking at the prevention of mental illness. So I think we do have to consider when we're talking about mental health and saying, you know, we have mental health guidelines and mental health is the presence of positive functioning. How are our guidelines promoting positive functioning or despite acknowledging mental health as the presence of positives are our guidelines kind of exacerbating the existing issues and are we really just taking a deficit reduction approach to mental illness and saying that we've done mental health stuff yeah that's such an important point and when we had a conversation before we just kind of tapped into a little bit into that what would positive mental health look like and there is when these concepts such as meaning and purpose actually come in and there would be that link that we are talking about different dimensions of meaning and and how that connects to other things and experiences in sport. And so you mentioned that um, Keyes' model is something that you drew on and he has this dual continuum model of mental health. So maybe just explain how does that model work? What are the key components? Mm-hmm. With Keyes' model, the paper, if you search Keyes 2002, the mental health continuum, um, it's a, I find it a pretty accessible paper. Um, and it gives a really good overview of kind of his thoughts and his ideas on it. And so with his model, he proposed that we recognize that mental health is the presence of positive functioning, but we don't actually have models of mental health in this way, where we have models of mental illness and we conceptualize mental illness as a, a series of symptoms related to dysfunction but we hadn't yet created this series of symptoms that we can use to quote unquote diagnose uh, positive functioning and so he proposed this two continuum model where on one continuum you have the presence or absence of mental illness and on the other continuum you have the presence or 
absence of mental health. And Keyes proposed that the presence of mental health consisted of hedonic and eudaimonic well-being, which he broke down as hedonic well-being being emotional well-being, including a positive affect and life satisfaction. And then the eudaimonic component of mental health for Keyes included psychological well-being, which we've seen a lot of in sport, our six dimensions of psychological well-being. But then it also includes social well-being, which is an interesting contribution that's actually unique to his model of mental health, where it includes an individual's perception of how society or the, the groups they're involved with are functioning. And this is reflective of the World Health Organization's definition and the way that it's evolved over time. So focusing in specifically on his model of mental health, uh, colloquially, I think we generally have an understanding of mental illness when we talk about it, you know, a clinical diagnosis of depression or anxiety or bipolar. With mental health, Keyes proposed that the presence of mental health, so every day or almost every day over the course of a month, you tend to feel most of the eudaimonic dimensions of well-being and one of the two hedonic dimensions he called that flourishing and flourishing has gotten a fair bit of attention in the literature although the term is often thrown around not referring to his model so it is important when you see an article that says they looked at flourishing um double check because it might not refer to Keyes's model and there are other models of flourishing that are out there and then on the other end of his mental health continuum, Keyes has this idea of languishing. So languishing is the absence of those positive feelings. Languishing can often manifest similarly to depression in terms of it might look like it's dysfunction, but it's just an absence of positive functioning because you have an absence of these positive appraisals of your well-being. Languishing got a lot of attention actually a, a few months ago in the pandemic. Adam Grant wrote a piece on it in the New York Times. And then in between languishing and flourishing, we have moderate mental health. So with Keyes' approach, one of the things that I found really interesting about it is you can, in theory, be flourishing. You can experience high levels of mental health while you're dealing with a mental illness, while you're, you know, experiencing those other symptoms, which is kind of interesting. It's very rare in his research that it comes up. I think it's generally less than 2% uh, of samples when using this model tend to report having a diagnosis of depression while flourishing. And frankly, I think it might be even less than 1%. But that's a really interesting part of the model because it's essentially saying that we have these two different these two different things that are related, like they tend to go hand in hand, the absence of mental illness uh, makes it easier, arguably, to flourish, but it's not impossible. If you're, let's say, successfully treating depression, you know, you still have that diagnosis. It's still something you have to work on. It's still something you have to take care of yourself with, but you can experience that positive mental health. You can experience that positive affect. You can experience that life satisfaction, that psychological and that social well-being. So, that would be my summary of Keyes' model, and I really do encourage people, if they're interested, to go check out the paper. Uh, again, that's Keyes 2002, uh, The Mental Health Continuum. Yeah, I think something along those lines. I've been recently reading the work of Tatiana Schnell, 
and and she's been writing about meaning in life from a psychological perspective and and one of the themes that she's talking about is existential indifference so those are the people who have like very low level of um, search for meaning or search for uh, self-knowledge they are low on spirituality and and so on so they are not so bothered about like big questions of life and what she was showing is that they don't have like mental health problems like depression or anxiety but at the same time these people who are existentially indifferent they also have like a lower psychological well-being in terms of like life satisfaction or positive effect and so on so i guess that would be then an example of that you can have an okay mental health in terms of the absence of mental illness but you are not flourishing either so i i think that's just like related to that model as well yeah, that's actually a really interesting point. Uh, I haven't read it in Keyes's writing, but he actually, after the New York Times article came out about languishing, he did a, uh, a number of interviews. And he did one, for me locally, he did one with our uh, Canadian public broadcaster, the CBC in Edmonton. And he actually talked about his interest in existentialism probably informed the way he developed flourishing and the way he thought about mental health because you can look at um, and he describes actually languishing as feeling hollow empty and void of purpose um, so I think the links between between meaning and mental health are important I think hmm. what you would find and what I found actually in the second study of my research was that coaches in Canadian university sport who were flourishing created these personally meaningful principles to guide their actions. And when they acted in ways that were consistent with those principles, they were able to protect or promote their mental health. And I found that really interesting because, you know, to me, creating those principles was a way of making different areas of their life meaningful. So specific to sport, personal growth was something that they looked for in their job. So it was a way they've arguably found meaning in their work was by challenging themselves to grow and improve and learn new things, as well as making a difference in the lives of their student athletes. And so by framing their work as an opportunity to grow, as an opportunity to make a difference in, the, in someone else's life, I think they were able to uh, create that idea of, um, and again, we've touched on it in the past in our own conversations, is just that idea of meaningful work. So by looking at their job a little bit differently than maybe people who aren't flourishing, by creating that meaning in their work, it seems that they were able to protect and promote their mental health based on the conversations I had with them. So I do think one of the things that we're going to see more of, hopefully, as well as looking into kind of identity and the dual career and the way different domains interact with our athletes, is also the way that people create meaning in sport and the contribution of that to mental health. Yeah, I mean, certainly that's one of the areas that I hope to be contributing to and, and especially like excited to see this this developing. Maybe one one question that sometimes I'm wondering about, you mentioned that Keyes' work is, is to some extent based on existentialism and existentialism, there is this idea about meaning being central to living a good life. And so I'm, I've just always thought about it that you know like Kierkegaard and Nietzsche who are these philosophers 
behind existentialism, among others. I mean, they seem to be like, uh, I guess, not flourishing. I mean, Nietzsche had like a complete mental health collapse towards the end of his life. And and it sounds like Kierkegaard was quite miserable in, in many phases of his life as well. So, I mean, many of these philosophers whose writing has inspired us to think about meaning are actually ones who who seem to be very much struggling a lot and and certainly not flourishing at least not all the time but it seems that they were doing something highly meaningful in terms of their work it's such an interesting thing to think about and i think one of the things that that highlights especially when we look at keys's model is the importance of including social well-being in our consideration of mental health. And again, social well-being actually originated in health uh, following the Second World War as a bit of a commentary that if you're not part of a society that's functioning well, then you're not experiencing complete health. And obviously there was a lot of pushback towards that because how can I as a person, you know, I have limited say in the way my society functions. I have a say, but there was pushback from the community in that but Keyes kept it in as that perception of the way society is functioning. And I think, especially when you look at someone like Nietzsche and, yeah, I guess a lot of the philosophers, yeah, they were quite critical of the way their society was functioning. So even though they individually might have found their work meaningful, I think it's important to consider that, again, one of the strengths of Keyes' model is that inclusion of social well-being, because I would argue that there's a pretty good chance that those people didn't necessarily have that, that they maybe when it came to social well-being and just focusing on the the social part of it, um, they might have been experiencing an absence of social well-being overall, which again, would make it quite difficult to flourish. It's possible, but really unlikely that someone's going to flourish without having that social well-being. And so I think that's, again, it's a strength of Keyes' model, but it's also an interesting thing to think about is so much of the work that we know about meaning comes from people who perhaps felt that maybe society wasn't moving in a way that was meaningful uh, and really pushed for the idea that if we have more individuals doing things that are meaningful, we'll have a more meaningful society. But yeah, it's definitely a bit of a paradox that you would have these people who did have crises of mental health or challenges with mental illness come up with an idea that's that's so foundational to uh, one of the strongest models of mental health that we have to date. Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. But I think that point you made about like this, that we are in a context and, and it's that society and culture around you. And, you know, we know from many of these philosophers that actually they were not recognized or their contributions and their works were not recognized when they were writing those books. So maybe they were like 50 or 100 years after they'd already died that, you know, people started to see the value of that work. So many of them felt rejected during during their life and, and so on. And it's the legacy that lives on now. Yeah. Thank you so much for the introduction to these topics. It's been a fascinating uh, conversation and We'll finish up for our first part at the moment, and in the second part, we'll jump into actually looking at your empirical work and your findings. So thanks for the conversation so far. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Research Podcast. If you like the show, 
make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever app you're using. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.